0: Beyond Leadership, a Cleveland Clinic podcast at the intersection of leadership and everything else. In this podcast, we will co-mingle with extraordinary thinkers and explore the impact of their ideas and experiences on leadership and management. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Beyond Leadership. I am your host, Dr. Brian Bowell, and today I'm joined by Dr. Patrick Byrne, chairman of Cleveland Clinic's Head & Neck Institute. Patrick, welcome. Thanks, Brian, for having me. Pat, can you tell our uh, listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to this role? Sure. So I uh, spent my first eighteen
1: years in practice at, at Johns Hopkins. I had moved there from California, where I was born and raised. And uh, my specialty is facial plastic and reconstructive surgery. So for my first many years in practice, I was really heavily focused on my clinical practice and helped build the division there. and uh, focused on reconstruction of cancer defects and skin cancers and facial nerve work and cleft, lip and palate and all that. And, and you know, super focused on, on that. And eventually had some opportunities to probably because we built a program uh, there, but had some other opportunities to help be part of leadership teams and enjoyed it and uh, never aspired to be a chair uh, or really move up the professional ladder. But in that way, but I really enjoy building building things with others and had an opportunity to interview for a, the chair position here and became super fascinated with Cleveland Clinic and and about two and a half years ago made the leap and moved, from, moved my family and myself from Baltimore
0: to Cleveland. If I remember when you were at Hopkins, you were involved in a lot of different leadership roles, but one of them was surgical operations to some degree. Am I accurate about that? Yeah, we built Hopkins built a really large, beautiful, state-of-the-art ambulatory
1: surgery center, and I was asked to lead the effort to stand it up uh, and develop a strategy to move. It was about twenty-six thousand cases a year, one hundred and eight surgeons, and twelve different specialties out of the main campus and into the region. You know that was super interesting, very humbling, to be honest. Learned a lot, uh, including through taking some lumps. But yeah, that was a great experience to to dive into that specific domain. What did you learn? Oh, my goodness. People don't get excited and jump out of bed by spreadsheets. I learned that. <laughs> i I, you know, I can uh, geek out on some like operations details that you know I think are really interesting and cool. and but you know not a lot of others share that. and and so that was one thing. And the other is it was actually kind of a laboratory to try to create a culture that I found super fascinating because, the feeling was on the main campus, the operating rooms didn't run very well. And there was a lot of grumblings. That tends to be the, tr- the case in main campus academic operating rooms around the country. And we just thought, well, what if we could create an amazing place where from the moment you walk in, the surgeons loved it and also the patients did and all the nurses? And, and how the heck do you do that? That was a really fun experiment to try to figure out you know, if you could design for that, essentially. What do you do? In my case, I tried to read a lot and figure out, you know, you know, how to, how do you do this in trial and error, you know, so I think getting the right people on the bus is super key. And in leadership positions, people who have uh, hopefully an optimistic and growth mindset and go through life with an internal locus of control. I think in key positions, that's key. I think. Being super explicit about the vision, like you got to talk about it a lot, helps because when everybody knows what you're actually trying to accomplish, it's much better than if, than if they don't. And it's amazing how often we all get distracted and busy in the day to day, our day to day lives, and we lose sight of what the big picture is. And that's, I think, one of the key jobs of a leader is keep training people on. Well, here's what we're actually trying to do. So let's let's in this moment solve this problem with that in mind. Yeah, so those are some things. I think how you run meetings and signal you know, safety to people and make sure people feel truly safe to express their honest opinions is is helpful. So yeah, I think there's a lot of building blocks to building a, a, a high-performing culture. It has to be healthy.
0: So for our listeners, there's a lot of fundamentals that Pat's talking about here. So when you're obviously trying to, that's a big change management job, what you're describing, right? I mean, taking a big chunk of, surgical operations from the main campus to an ambulatory center. And and you always execute through teams. And what you said at the end is, I think, essential. Psychological safety allows people to voice their opinions. And importantly, you want everybody to voice their opinion. You don't want any passengers of these teams. And I think that that helps generate some of the culture that you're talking about. And then, of course, you mentioned communication. and And that's there's a, many different ways to communicate, but how you do it and, and the tone you set is, I think, very important. You know, leaders need to have a clear view of the big picture, as you just said. But we also need to be optimistic, and we need to generate a confidence that we'll figure it out. You know, that that we're gonna you know, we're gonna actually execute. And it sounds like those are all things that you did pretty well. Not always. So I remember one of
1: my a really good learning experience was um, I was pretty new in the job, so this is probably six six or so years ago, and I was multitasking on my way into the ORs. I was I was handling on my headphones a, a difficult conversation, and I you know had patients in clinic and patient waiting in the OR, and and I had a very brusque interaction, terse with one of the nurse managers. And it really threw her off, and I realized after speaking to her, you know that particularly if you're the leader and you walk in and you're super grumpy, and you're you ignore people who are trying to get your attention and and tell you something important, it's a pretty bad signal to send, and it's contagious. You know, uh, emotions are contagious. In that moment, you know that's one of the interesting things about leadership. To me, as I'm trying to learn, is there's sort of the high level strategic side of leadership which is important and then there's the sort of daily interactions the little the little details of how you treat people and and that really matters maybe just as much you know and 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 that was that was a a moment i won't forget the way she laid into me later and set me straight about and i you know she was right she was right I, i was i was not in the right mind
0: frame to to lead that morning actually, I think it's those little things that matter more than, than the knowledge of how mm-hmm. to be tactical about leadership. And that's, you know, I talk a lot about serving leadership and living your values and having the courage to live your values. And I think all that's really important. Anyway, in terms of what you the story you just described, mm-hmm. thank you for that. And, and I think it's important that, that we all realize that that when we communicate, especially from a leadership platform, it's not just the facts behind what we're saying. It's also that these words carry an emotional component to them and how they're received emotionally is very important. It kind of gets into intention versus impact. You know, the intention of our words are usually pretty noble, but Mm -hmm. if the way we impact other people is something less than that, then the intention is going to get lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do you course correct?
1: Like, have you had that You know, how do you get feedback to know that it's not landing the way you intend? And how do you adjust your habits?
0: Well, I think I've messed this up many, many, many times, Pat. I think I'm pretty much an expert at messing this up. You know, so a lot of it's been realizing, having people tell me, but also realizing that this was an area of opportunity for me. And over decades, I have tried very hard to improve. Still a work in progress. I remember I was fortunate to kind of, meet with you when you first came and and you talked about a book that that you had been reading and it was about insight. And and a lot of this is that, Pat, you know. So it's important for for us to realize, you know, what we don't do particularly well. In my case, the intention versus impact has been a historical opportunity for me. But why don't you share how you came across the importance of insight?
1: there's a number of experiences. Uh, One, one that comes to mind was sort of a tough interaction with a chair, my former chair at Hopkins. And I had been, I, I don't know that this is all that unusual. I had been so obsessively focused for my first several years in practice with building my own surgical skills, building a big practice you know, I wanted to do the most difficult, interesting things. And then I wanted to recruit a team. And, and even with the team, we grew an entire division and a research program, but it was focused on us and our, you know, our place in this world. And, and I didn't have enough insight at the time to recognize the opportunity to embrace everyone else. And my first sort of hard pivot was really when I had a bit of a dressing down from my former chair. Ironically, it was at, during a meeting to discuss my promotion to full professor at Johns Hopkins. And it's was like, oh, this is great. You know, he's going to, you know, thank me for my years of service. And he kind of, he did, but he also gave some honest feedback. And I walked out of thinking, what the heck, you know, and, you know, I did all this work and create all this stuff. And he's saying I need to be more attentive at, at in faculty meeting and show up more to like this, that, and the other, right? But the more I thought about it, it took me a couple of days, the more I realized there was tons of good stuff in there for me to just become a better person in the workplace. You know, I'm fascinated by uh, Adam Grant's Give and Take book as well, you know, and how most of us are givers in our families, but we're matchers. Most people are matchers in the workplace, and and we all know who takers are, and thankfully there aren't, you know, I don't think too many of those in the workplace. But but matching's not as good as giving, right? So mm-hmm. instead of always giving and matching an equal portion, you know, reciprocity. What if we just try to give? Just just adopt a mindset where I'm I'm here to add value to other people's lives, and I'm going to try to help them, and I'm not going to worry about what I get in 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 in, in return. And, uh, you know, to the degree I'm able to do that, life is better. That's for sure. It's more fun, too. That was the first, you know, hard experience of realizing I had work to do, for sure, quite a bit.
0: So for our listeners, Adam Grant is kind of a guru these days on on leadership and leadership teaching. One of his wonderful books is called Givers and Takers, and it's a great read. But one of the ideas is that, you know, altruistic people who are givers can actually... We were talking about culture earlier they can elevate the culture of a team and actually convert people from being maybe not so much of a giver into becoming people who are givers and pretty powerful stuff so just to wrap up the the hopkins story so how'd it go i mean it sounds like it went well did 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 it work it, it i got better i got better and uh well, about the project, I mean. The-
1: oh, oh, the project. <laughs> it went well. You know, the the we we actually created a wonderful team. It was really one of my, you know, great experience in life. To, and I love everybody on that team still so much. We're still friends. And and I did hear from countless surgeons in that first year where we opened. Like, wow, it's different here, right? And that was that to me. That was you know, part, more than the numbers and cents. You know, that was the sign of success. Wow, I really like coming here. They're so everybody's so nice, right? They seem like they want to help, and so I think we got the culture piece down, and then we were we were we we're doing very well on the operations side and meeting targets. All that happened. Uh, we opened in about July of 2019, so you can imagine what what happened in short order. Right. And then I hightailed it out of here. I, I actually came to Cleveland in the August of 2020. So, you know, but it was a great it was a great our first year went really well. It was a great experience. Yeah. So why did you decide to come here? You know, I think I think we touched on a little bit, Brian. That if I hadn't had that experience in the ASC, actually, I don't think I would have responded to the invitation to interview here. I had always thought that I didn't want to be a chair or a leader of other than a small subspecialty niche, uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, one, I like being creative. I like building things, and it's more interesting to build to me to build something new and innovative than to you know steer a ship that's going really well and so the right opportunity would have to be seem like it has a big upside and then in the ASC an aspect of leadership that I didn't know if I would like or not is a lot of the HR stuff coaching people and I didn't feel going and now it's probably some lack of insight on my part to say this but but I will say that I didn't feel like I needed a lot of praise or coaching going through you know my early career and yet in a leadership role, often that's what one needs to do. I didn't know if I'd like it. And it turns out I loved it. Like I loved helping people problem solve, you know, when when we got complaints about someone misbehaving in the OR instead of it being a challenge, I th- I felt like it was a positive challenge. Like there, there's something that's making this person upset and let's help him or her figure it out. And, and you know, I felt, gosh, gosh, I really like this. And so the simple answer is... I felt the timing was good for me to go all in on focusing on others instead of myself, and that's honestly probably as much as anything as what it was. When when you accept a job of chair, for example, you got to be all in on the team. It's not about you. Like all those personal professional aspirations have to take a back seat. I felt like I was just jumping into a pool, almost like I just made the leap, and you know I was ready for a change. Cleveland Clinic, explicitly, I do feel. And I still do. Th- almost three years in, has a unique capacity for innovation. I think a comfort with risk and an ability to be more nimble than many academic medical centers. You know, and so I like the idea of innovating uh, innovation here. So that was it. So we, you know, rest is history.
0: Took the leap. Now we're Clevelanders. Couldn't agree with you more about the concept that one of. You know, a high-level leadership position is all about the team and certainly not about you. And I think that's totally the right attitude to to take. And what have you discovered since you've arrived? It's hard. It's hard on
1: the high-level strategic decision-making side. It's, it's hard to be consistently effective on the soft skills, small interpersonal side too. It's incredibly rewarding and so that the the rewards uh, you know the tangible progress is often delayed you know in this role i find very different from like training a fellow where it's you're you know right together in the weeds in the or every day and so i think my first year it was incredibly interesting didn't regret the decision for a moment i don't know that i would use the word fun to describe what i was <laughs> I was doing uh, but i was into it right like we got a job to do we're going to become the best play- and we 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 set aside time. We created a, a a vision statement and a set of values. We put a lot of time and attention into it, and it's it's an amazing one. You know, it's we aspire to be the best place on planet Earth for to receive or provide care for conditions related to the head and neck. We're going to treasure our caregivers, uh, innovate, demand unprecedented excellence. We have you know five sort of pillars there. It's really fun to. Develop a clear and compelling vision, but more fun to just try to take daily action in, in service of it. And uh, and then once you see a little progress here and there, it's you know it's so energizing. And and you if you keep your eyes open, you see progress all around, right? And I think people get excited. And it's just it's been really it's been really fun. Very hard, uh,
0: but also super rewarding. I feel very blessed. So, from a leadership philosophy, what do you think are the keys? What do you think are the keys to to doing what you're doing, which is, you know, having a compelling vision, rallying your team, executing, leading through change, what, how do effective leaders do it? And what do you try to do?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I assume I'll answer in a better way, five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now. So far, I'm a big believer in the culture. Like we mentioned, I think having a vision is incredibly helpful. I don't know if it's necessary. I, for me, I think it is. And the vision has to be pretty specific. You know, you have to feel, be able to feel it. When people know what you're actually trying to, I think of it in terms of like, at the very top are the objectives. And once you know what the big objective is, what are we actually trying to accomplish is another way of saying that. Then creating a strategy and then letting the tactics follow, you know, fill the strategy is sort of the sequence that makes sense to me. And so the vision is super key. I think creating the conditions for, a healthy culture, which we mentioned is incredibly important. In the end though, a lot of the getting stuff done, you can't do yourself. And so pretty quickly, you know, you realize you need teams, you know, and you need good leaders of each team. And then you can't micromanage each team. You know, people hate it and it's it's stupid, right? Because if I, you know, start telling the front desk people how to do their job, I'm dumber than I look, right? Like they know their job better. They're the ones with the patient every single day. Listen to them, right? And so I think you know what we try to create is a bunch of signposts towards, we want you to lead in your own area. We want you to let us know how best to do that, but none of us matter in comparison to the vision. The vision is what matters. So that's been interesting. And then I think you do have to manage as well as lead, right? So all the vision talk in the world is, is, I think, necessary, but it's not sufficient, right? And that's building in management practices with clear expectations, objective measures, holding each other accountable. And I I find that side of leadership interesting as well, actually. But those are the building blocks, I guess, is where I would start uh, to answer your question.
0: So a few topics to briefly expand on. Obviously, what you're describing when you say that You've got to rely on on your teams to execute is is the concept of trust. I mean, if if you're going to effectively delegate and empower people, you've got to trust them to, in fact, as you said, they know what the job is and you're trusting them to, in fact, execute. Totally. And, uh, you know, that begs the question, perhaps, like,
1: do you earn trust or do you just grant it? I think it's a little bit of both for me. I think for key leadership positions, it takes some time to know who's capable. But I think starting with the baseline respect of every single person, every single person that I want to hear your views, I want you to be honest with me, because I don't have all the answers. I think that's pretty key. I can see how easy it would be as a leader uh, to live in a bubble where everybody laughs at your jokes and they all tell you you're great and then you're not making great decisions because you're not getting good information. You know, I often think of the every single lecture I ever gave in an academic setting my entire career, I always hear the exact same thing. Great talk, great talk. And I know they weren't all great talks, but everybody always says great talk. So somehow we have to, you know, solicit, you know, unvarnished true opinions and, and, and prove to people that it's okay for you to do that. So with that, I think you can trust, you know, virtually everybody. If, prove they're not capable of filling a certain role then you got to make a change but you know i think you're right trust is so key to a healthy because otherwise yeah nobody talks people harbor grudges they they're they're not going to align with your vision if they don't believe in it and don't feel comfortable expressing alternative point of view there's so many things that are based on trust it's a great point
0: but you're touching on some other themes as well so you know you just said i don't have all the answers i think when leaders show humility it, it elevates culture. I think it's a great way for, for leaders to connect with with members of the team because they'll want to help and they'll want to contribute. And then you talked about treating people with respect. And this, this tends to come up repeatedly. Is, is there's there's a study that Steve Covey quotes in The Speed of Trust, What separates high-performing organizations from those who aren't as high-performing, and it's how you treat your fellow human beings. And if you treat the people around you with respect and, and dignity and, and and a curiosity about what they're thinking, again, that elevates culture and it just is a winning formula. And And you're just describing it. So congratulations.
1: Well, you know, what jumps out to me is I remember in, I'm sure it's true as an oncologist as well, in facial plastic surgery practice, you've got this you know, a lot of different types of patients, and occasionally you'll have someone who you know is just going to be challenging. Uh, maybe you met him before, and you just, oh, you see the name on the schedule, and you you know, you, you. and early on, I, I it took me a few years to kind of figure out how best to manage difficult people in my practice. It actually might have been another Adam Grant thing that got me to thinking about it, but somebody I, I heard once talk about how you know instead of being your true self you know because maybe your true self that day is a grumpy person be your best self you know and inhabit that space and i started experimenting with talking to myself as i enter the room and reminding myself i'm going to love this person no matter what they say and i use the word love and i'm open about it right like i i realized that i can imme- immediately my own concerns cuz it's always my your, it's always our reaction to the other person that causes you know distrust and lack of respect it's it's not the other person and uh by just inhabiting that space of like you know i'm going to be there to you know show compassion i'm going to let them know it and it just makes life better and I, I find that you know it's like a switch that i think we can turn on with others and remind ourselves that it's not about me it's about them and how can i support and love this person and and hopefully that's a little contagious right That that, that gets around
0: That is a great story. So I really, really like that. And actually, you know, there's a book called Love 2.0, which in fact talks about the fact that we can create loving encounters with anybody in 30 to 40 seconds if we actually make the attempt. And I I believe that. And I think that's a great way to put it, to always try to be your best self. Earlier, you also talked about you like another part of leadership, which includes objectives and key results. And, And you mentioned at the beginning that you were learning or you learned how to run a meeting. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on, on this part of leadership? So I, I find uh, business interesting. I
1: have a pretty varied background with in the private sector and a- academic sector. And I think there's a, what I found is there's abundant opportunity to innovate and improve practices within within healthcare, within large centers, within individual practices. And so what I've tried to do is a combination of creating a structured process focused on clear accountability, but also infuse it with coaching and learning. And so amongst the tactics that we've employed is, you know, I don't think any are particularly novel, but, um, you know, monthly business review uh, with individual division or section leaders in which we try to focus on data that actually matters there is so much data that we are exposed. Cleveland clinics amazing at creating data but the effect is tends to be mesmerizing the observers where we all sit around and look at the data and uh, we just admire the data that doesn't help anyone and so you know I'm often reminded of one of my favorite business phrases being never underestimate the complete unimportance of almost everything. I think part of the art is trying to hone in on what actually matters. Like that's that's a leadership skill. So much noise, but what's the signal? And I think we owe it to our, our leaders that report up to us and our colleagues and our staff to help them see what, what actually matters. And so in those business reviews, we try to limit the data to what matters and then take action on those You know, simple tactics like a fill rate in cl- by clinic visit type can be looked at frequently because it can be adjusted. You're continually optimizing and you don't do the same thing for every single specialty. You, you adjust it for that specialty. Rebalancing clinic versus OR, we don't put nearly enough thought into this. We just assign clinics and assign ORs In reality, there's probably an optimal balance in how many days per month should be in clinic versus OR for every surgeon, and it's different for each practice. So why not design for that? We can look at wait times for one, wait times for the other, and on a quarterly basis, just like rebalancing your stock and bonds portfolio, you rebalance, right? This is how you optimize. I think focusing on operational leverage and productivity ratios is Productivity ratios are interesting because in healthcare, by and large, unless you create alternative payment models and all that, which is coming as well, of course, but it really comes down to to volumes, yield, and cost. We can bucket the various options uh, into these different categories and realize they're multiplicative and small changes make a big difference. I do find the coaching of business principles really interesting and, and kind of fun to unlock value.
0: Well, they are. They're actually fascinating. But I, I really like what you said a minute ago, which is we are inundated with a lot of data. We measure a lot of things and we track a lot of things. But I do think that one of the leaders' important roles is to let the group know what's really important, what our primary priorities are, because if we don't, we've got literally hundreds of priorities. But what do we really need to focus on? And 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 arguably, if you get three or four of them right, probably most of the rest of the stuff will go OK, too, because you've got really good people. And. And then, of course, as you said earlier, some of the things aren't that important, but simply being able to articulate that is, I think, a really important leadership skill. Well, one of the famous examples, of course, is
1: your emphasis on time to treat. you know. To me, that's beautifully reductive. Um, I was fascinated by it because it's clearly the right thing for a patient with a cancer diagnosis. And that's where every effort should start. But although I don't recall you saying this when I learned about this, but what followed for me was a lot of other important financial metrics would follow from that. It's not the primary reason to do it, but it's an elegantly reductive thing to focus on. And when that's possible, it's it's very helpful. You know, well, so- thank
0: you for saying that. That's very kind of you. Yeah, when I was for our listeners, when I was running the cancer center, the interval between a new diagnosis of cancer and the first treatment called Time to Treat was very important to us because when I started to look at it, it turns out in academic healthcare centers, the average time to treat is over six weeks, which seems to be an unusually long time for a newly diagnosed cancer patient. We're in tough times right now, Pat. We've got, uh, we're coming out of COVID. We've got financial challenges. You always express a degree that's refreshing of optimism and and kind of a, a confidence that it'll be okay. How do you do that? And how do you see the next couple of years playing out?
1: Well, I think one of the biggest risks is that we will beat on our caregivers too much over time. And I often reflect on my experience about 20 years now in academic medicine that the refrain each year is payment is payments are going down, uh, care is getting more complex, we have an aging population, and the net result is uh, we have to do more with less. And the pandemic has dramatically exaggerated this, obviously, because of workforce shortages and inflation and what have you. Um, but it's the same themes, really. It's the same themes. And you think of those three levers, we can increase volumes in response, we can try to drive a higher yield, or we can cut costs. We we tend to focus on the first one in healthcare because it makes sense. But if, if that's our only answer, year in, year out, this story isn't going to end well. And I really worry about our caregivers of all types. I'm optimistic because I do think there's significant slack in each system that I've been involved with where these small incremental tweaks can create some space. I also have great confidence, and this is probably a stronger reason why I'm super optimistic, that we can innovate our way through. And I think that's where the greatest hope lies. We, we clearly need to evolve how we deliver care in this country. We need to do a better job at true preventive health, for example. We need to deliver care more efficiently with few, probably fewer caregivers in aggregate, but target them to the highest capacity. And we, we need to leverage technology more. But I believe we can do it. And I think it's a great challenge because our patients and our caregivers need us to.
0: That was very eloquent, and I agree with all. As we're wrap, wrapping up, Pat, any last-minute thoughts about your leadership philosophy that you'd like to share?
1: You know, the only other element is humor. I do think we should have fun. You know, we we spend a lot of time at work, and I, I notice that if I go you know, a few days and and no one's laughing, then I'm doing something wrong for sure. And it's just an element of leadership I don't hear discussed as often, as I think I'm realizing allowing all of us to actually have fun and find moments of levity is, it quickly changes, you know, the mindset in the room, one from, you know, burden to opportunity and I
0: think there's something there as well. It's also authenticity, which which I think is is a bonding thing. And yeah, actually, we one of our earlier podcasts we talked a fair amount about humor. Obviously, it's got to be the right forum. There are certain forums where it's not going to play very well, obviously. But yes, I mean, I think that uh, you know your work teams or your work family, and 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 all the things that are wonderful about that are. Part of it. This has been absolutely fabulous, so thank you so much, Dr. Byrne, for joining us for Beyond Leadership. To our listeners, thank you for listening. We'll join you again soon, and I wish everybody a wonderful day. This concludes this episode of Beyond Leadership. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash beyondleadership, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We welcome any topic ideas you may have for future episodes, comments, and questions about this or any past episode. You can let us know by emailing us at executiveeducationccf.org.